If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Occasionally, I will hear people say, the doctrines of eternal hell and of the wrath of God are not popular in our day. Well, the truth of the matter is, they have never been popular. There are some messages of Scripture that are pleasant to deliver and others that are unpleasant, but both are necessary for the well-being of those who hear them. Paul must have found this section of Scripture very, very difficult to deliver. I don't care much for it myself. It is difficult. It is unpleasant. It is not pleasant to think about the wrath of God against sinful men. There is nothing pleasant about thinking that there are literally millions of people who are alive today who will choose to spend eternity in hell. There's nothing pleasant about that. But Paul delivered this message, and humanity is better for it. It is doubtful that there is a more perceptive analysis of human nature anywhere than what is found here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through verse Chapter 3, verse 20. This section teaches us that perversion in life comes from perversion in faith. Our moral perversion is not the cause, but rather it is the result of wickedness. The consequence of a much more deep-seated evil. That means that however justifiable they may seem, sermons on morality are of no value because they do not get to the root of the matter. They do not get to the underlying cause of the sin. That's one of the great burdens of chapter 1 here. Uh, And it is clearly suggested in verse 18 where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul is heading toward, uh, in chapters 3 and 4, the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is expected that he should set forth the doctrine of condemnation first. For it is necessary for people to see their need of justification, their need of Christ, before the remedy is offered. So beginning here in verse 18 and continuing through chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle develops the case history of human sin and of condemnation. And he will come in chapter 3 to say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Jew has sinned. The religious man has sinned. The pagan has sinned. They've all sinned. And they all are in need of grace. Philip Melanchthon was uh, the uh, uh, close friend and confidant and assistant to the great reformer Martin Luther. And Melanchthon called verse 18 an exordium terrible as lightning because it is an indictment of humankind. It is a divine denunciation that expresses the revulsion of a holy God against human unbelief 
and rebellion. That's why the preaching of the gospel is so urgent. These things are true that he says here. This indictment of humanity is true. All you have to do is open a newspaper. Look around you. You know that what he is going to say in these verses is true. The, uh, the Greek 4 makes the connection with this preceding section. There is a revelation of righteousness by the gospel because there is a revelation of wrath on the whole world. The word wrath is a term that is generally repugnant not only to uh, humanity in general, but to many professing believers. Most people would prefer to have a God without wrath. In the last century, uh, the neo-Orthodox theologian uh, Helmut Richard Niebuhr described and defined theological liberalism this way. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Most people would prefer that God not be seen as a God of wrath, even many who profess to be Christians. They like a God who's all love. But it is actually love that wrath comes from. God loves enough to hate evil. In fact, his wrath is just that. It is the antagonism of holy love to evil. God's wrath is not a vindictive rage. It is not an emotional reaction to his irritation or his own self-concern. God's wrath comes out of his love, and he expresses his wrath in punitive justice, retributive justice. The, uh, the, the precise force of the word revealed here it is a present tense verb, uh, and it refers to a continuing revelation. Uh, some have suggested this revelation is to be found in nature with its laws of health and suffering or in conscience with its laws of right and wrong. Paul himself gives the readers the solution to what is revealed when he says three times, God gave them up. God gave them up. That, that introduces uh, the, the doctrine of the, the judicial infliction of abandonment to people to the intensified cultivation of unnatural sexual atrocities, other vices, uh, other degrading behavior. Someone has once said the world's history is the world's judgment. Uh, the object of God's wrath, we're told, is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, the, this truth that is revealed to us here is that immorality in life proceeds from apostasy in doctrine. When you no longer believe God, the result is ungodliness and unrighteousness. The basic responsibility of man, remember, is first Godward. What is the first and the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Next, manward, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
The world has rejected that truth. The world has rejected the love of God. And it is reaping the harvest of that product. All of the violence and the crime and the immorality in the world today, that of the lewdest type, is a result of men having abandoned religion. That is the one true religion. They have abandoned any pretense of a love for God. And when you abandon God, you have no foundation for morals whatsoever. Richard Dawkins, the noted atheist, uh, who's written a number of books about his militant atheism, has said it correctly. If there is no God, we're all just protoplasm. We're all just molecules drifting around in space. There is no foundation to say this is right and this is wrong if there is no God. God gives you an anchor of morality, and when that's gone, there is nothing. Morality apart from God is an insult to God. For he who inhabits eternity is to be worshipped because of who he is. If you deny who he is then you have simply insulted him. If you're saying that I can be moral and not believe in God, you're saying that God is simply a, a means to an end. He is not. The meaning of the word suppress means to hold down, to restrain. This meaning is well suited to express the truth that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. People suppress the knowledge of the truth. They have the knowledge of truth, they just don't respond to it. So, notice what he says first about the willful blindness of the world in verses 19 and 20. Paul uh, says that men have willfully rejected the light of the revelation of God that is shown in his works. Notice what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Men are guilty whether they ever hear the gospel or not. You understand that? There is enough evidence in the creation to know there is a God. There is enough evidence in nature and within man himself to know that God is real. Paul says that they can clearly perceive the eternal attributes of God. I was asked Friday night uh, when I, I was doing a funeral and in the interim of receiving friends in the funeral, a young man who's a, a son of one of my cousins that I you know, see whenever someone dies, uh, he asked me, he said, I want to ask you a question. I'm having a Bible study with a, a, a group of young people. He's 28 years old. He said, we were all talking about, what about the person on the desert island who's never heard the gospel? If they die without ever hearing the gospel, do they go to heaven? I said, what do you think? He said, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Smart answer. You know. And I said, well, let me ask you this. If people who never hear the gospel go to heaven when they die... You wouldn't want to send missionaries to him, would you? He said, what? I said, well, 
Doesn't it stand to reason if they're going to heaven, if they never hear the gospel, you wouldn't want to tell it to them, would you? Oh, he said, I hadn't thought about that. I said, yeah, but yet Jesus said that we are to go into the whole world proclaiming the gospel. I said, Paul makes it clear in the first chapter of Romans, verse 19 and 20, that there is enough evidence in the creation. There is enough evidence that is hardwired into man himself to know that there is a God. But men rebel against that light rather than respond to it. I said, now, if a man responds to it, I believe, personally, that God will see to it. Somehow, they hear the gospel. How many of you have heard of Helen Keller? Helen Keller was a young woman who lived in the early part of the 20th century, latter part of the 19th century, and a, a, a terrible disease left her without sight, without speech, and without hearing. And a woman named Annie Sullivan worked with her years to tap out in, her, in the palm of her hand to get Helen Keller where she could communicate. And eventually she could. But when Annie Sullivan began to tell Helen Keller about God, Helen Keller tapped back to her this, I know there is a God, I just didn't know his name. How? How did she know that? She can't see, she can't hear, she can't speak. But innately, God has hardwired into humanity the reality of his existence. Most of you have heard the story about a missionary who goes into a, uh, into a, a, a deep recess of Africa and in a jungle he finds a, a man kneeling at the base of a tree. And the missionary says to him, you're not worshiping this tree, are you? And the man said, no, I know there is a God who made this tree. I don't know who he is. I'm worshiping him. He shared with him the gospel and received Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that there is enough evidence within man and in the creation that man can know there is a God. Now, he doesn't know the gospel from natural revelation, but he knows there is a God, and that God is real. But what do men do? Most of them, do they respond to that light? No, they rebel against it. And they worship trees, and they worship animals, and they worship other men. They reject the light that God gives every man. Uh... So the purpose of God's revelation is in creation is to serve the negative purpose of preserving man's responsibility before God and to heighten the conviction of sin and bring men into a state of inexcusability. God doesn't believe in atheists, okay? He doesn't believe in them because there is enough evidence in the creation, and in man himself to know that there is a God. Not enough to be saved, but if man responds favorably to it, then enough to hear the gospel and be saved. And then he goes into the wrong beliefs of the wicked. In verse 21 through 23, he now gives a more detailed consideration of the human response to that divine revelation in nature. 
he gives further reason for man's uh, culpability. Namely, they resist the light of the knowledge they receive. Like I said, they, they refuse to honor God or to give him thanks. We might ask, how can, how can Paul say that men knew God? Theologians usually speak of a twofold knowledge of God, and I've already given it to you. There is an innate knowledge of God. It's hard, hardwired into human existence. A sense of the divine, an inherent awareness of God, that that Helen Keller had. Secondly, a derivative knowledge of God can be perceived from the immensity and the order and the beauty of creation itself. Study a little bit about astronomy. That should convince you there is a God. Do you realize that at this moment, right now, right now, we are traveling at a thousand miles an hour around the sun. Hardly feels like we're moving, does it? <laughs> and think of all, all that's out there in space. And we, we don't run into anything, you know. I mean, you can barely get, you know, to the grocery store every day without running into somebody here. And we, you're not moving near anywhere near a thousand miles an hour. But if you look at the immensity of space or the... Uh, or, or the even in the in the uh, the smallness of of life itself. I, I remember reading years ago. If I get this wrong, Google it. You know, correct me. But in one molecule of water, or, or in one drop of water, if the molecules were grains of sand, there'd be enough to build a road a foot thick and a half a mile wide from Los Angeles to New York, just from the molecules in one drop of water. And you think that somehow that just all blew up and come down? I don't think so. When I look at creation, when I look at the stars, when I study a little bit about the order that is in the universe, then I want to sing how... Great thou art. If you, uh, if, if you just open your eyes, you can see evidence of God all around you. With the verb became futile, Paul begins his descriptions of man's regression. Man will not remain stationary. Once he rejects the light that God gives him, then it's a story not of evolution, but devolution. It is not... Progression, it is retrogression. Man doesn't move forward, he moves backwards. It's not a tale of man's climb from animism, magic, ancestor worship, polytheism to monotheism. It's the reverse. Heathenism's faith is the result of apostasy. In the final paragraph of two verses of this paragraph, Paul concludes with a description of the passage from unbelief from futility to folly. The fruit of depravity is idolatry. That is the miserable end that the unbelief of man leads him to. The creature is worshipped instead of the creator. The corruptible instead of the incorruptible. The temporal instead of the eternal. The earthly animal, the fleshly animal, instead of the heavenly spiritual being. God designed nature to be a source of knowledge to humanity. 
And men reject that glorious knowledge. And it makes him blameworthy. He is culpable. As a matter of fact, his unbelief is inexcusable. There's no excuse for it. Because there is enough evidence of God out there in nature. The Bible of nature is insufficient to save sinners. But it is enough to tell them there is a God. That they may respond positively to that. Then beginning at verse 24. Paul describes the wanton behavior of the wicked. This is a dark picture. This is a terrible picture of sin and judgment. The revelation of wrath is total and complete, encompasses everybody. Here we have God's retributive justice, one of his essential attributes. In the threefold God gave them up, the problem is plainly before the reader. There is only one alternative for God, and that is divine retribution. Therefore, makes the connection that sin justly brings judgment, a judgment expressed clearly in the final section of the chapter. God gave them up. That is not just permission. It doesn't just mean that God withdrew his hand and permitted these terrible things to happen. It doesn't mean completely that it is a derivative justice, that it comes about as a result of sin. That is true. But what Paul is saying here is that this is active judicial judgment of God. God turns them over because of their sin. It is a retributive just uh, judgment. They reap the harvest of their sin and their unbelief. We have the same thing uh, Stephen describes in Acts chapter 7 when he speaks of Israel's apostasy in the days of Moses and he says, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. A judicial abandonment, if you will. Now, in the midst of this retributive justice, see it clearly, there is no coercion by God. God does not force men to do evil. God does not force men to be perverts. He does not lead them into evil. They are responsible. God simply gives them over to the consequences of their own sin. The things that Paul is going to describe in these verses, and by the way, don't get too excited. We're through verse 18 today, or through verse 32 today. We're going to go back and look at it a lot. Don't worry about that. But as a result, the the things that he talks about, I hear people say sometimes, all that's going on in America today is going to bring the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God. The judgment of God has fallen on America. All that you see happening in the world today, all of this sexual perversion, it is the judgment of God. God has given us up a judicial abandonment. The retributive justice of God is playing out before our very eyes. So, verse 26 As a result of apostasy from the faith, humanity 
is given over to the judgment of unnatural sexual practices, both among women and men. Uh, the words that Paul uses here describe essentially males and females. Can't make anything more than that. He is stressing the uh, sexuality of individuals and he looks at them in a derogatory sense as if they were nothing more than sex animals. The theme of, of homosexuality and its judgment, notice, begins with the women. That's important. Because females are generally have, they generally have more shame. They are not generally pulled into those kind of practices as men are. Again, the way we're wired, we're different. Men are much more susceptible to pornography than women are. That's just a fact. It is the women that hold back. But here, the sex that is naturally the most shame-faced is the most debauched. In speaking of natural relations, Paul makes it plain that the propriety of the sexual act is grounded in the natural constitution of males and females established by God. Homosexuality, therefore, is an offense against God and God's order. You can't make it any other way. No matter what our culture says today, no matter how awoke liberal Christianity may put it, rampant homosexuality is evidence of the judgment of God upon our society. Now Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that there were many in the church of that day who were involved in homosexuality. He says men committing homosexual acts with other men. He talks about adulterers. And then he says, and such were some of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. Is homosexuality a sin that cannot be forgiven? No. No more than my sins that can be forgiven. But it is evidence of the judgment of God on a society. Uh, you, can't, you can't get around that. And Paul ends this section with a, with a horrible, damning text. One of the most damning texts of the Bible. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. There are absolute standards that come down to us from heaven. One of them is the wrath of God on human sin. It's inescapable. Paul is emphatically teaching that moral depravity is a result of the judgment of God. What is the real significance today of the spread of immorality and crime and violence in Western civilization? Sexual rebellion, license, and anarchy are the retributive judgment of God. Civilizations do not die because of violence, crime, immorality, and anarchy. Civilizations die because they abandon God. Religion and immorality are inseparably connected. Religion, again, is the only true foundation for morality. There is no other. 
Now, I want to be careful here too. In these verses, Paul is not speaking of eternal punishment. What he has said specifically in mind is a judgment that pertains to this life, not in the life to come. It's also plain that if people remain in unrepentant sin of this kind, that leads to eternal judgment. That leads to eternal wrath. The vindicatory judgment inflicted by God, if continued in in this life, leads to the more terrible and permanent form of punishment, eternal wrath. If you do not repent of sin, then God gives you up to eternal wrath and eternal judgment. Can God really give man up to judgment? Oh, yeah. These verses are a resounding yes. But that's not the final and convincing answer to the question. To the question, does God's holiness demand that his wrath be poured out on sin can be seen at the cross in the statement of Jesus Christ when he cried out in agony and blood, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That answers the question unmistakably that God can give people up to judgment. It was there that the sinless man bore the judgment of God on sin. And it forever proclaims the true nature of sin. The cross is not a testimony to my infinite worth. You know, the self-esteem gurus today go around talking about, oh, the cross is is a picture of how much I'm worth to God. No, it is not. The cross is a picture of the horrible, heinous, ugliness of our sin that it required the death of the sinless one for my sin to be forgiven for my sin to be for God's holiness to be propitiated there at the cross God gave the final answer to the question of how shall man be made right before God We're going to have a word of prayer. Then we're going to sing a verse of down at the cross.